You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by lead pastor Benjamin Emery. And if you have a Bible, you can pick it up and you can turn two places. Try and keep it simple, but we'd love for you to follow along. Revelation chapter 16. That's page 1099 in the church Bible. If you didn't have one on your seat, there's one behind you on your seat. And then Ephesians chapter 6 which is page 1039 in the church Bible. This is sermon six in our eight-part series on the end times. In other words, a look at how the world will end according to the Bible. And we believe the Bible is true. We've seen it reaffirmed uh, throughout history. And so we are going to confidently believe that this event is going to take place. At the end of this, we're going to be doing communion, and so hopefully this will be preparing your heart for when Pastor Mark comes up and leads us in communion. But let's read it together. Revelation 16, verses 12 to 16. The sixth poured out his bowl of great on the great Euphrates River, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming from the mount dragon's mouth, from the beast's mouth, and from the mouth of the false prophet. For they are demonic spirits performing signs, who traveled to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on that great day of God the Almighty. Look, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who is alert and who remains clothed so that they may not go around naked and people see their shame. So they assembled the kings at the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Let's pray. God, the thought of this event taking place seems foreign to our Canadian minds. Yet it will come to take place. But Lord, there's a greater meaning behind this. This battle is just the final battle of the war that is raging right now. Would you give us eyes to see that we are now involved in this war? Would you give us a heart that desires to fight on God's side? Would you wake us up? to the critical mission that we have as Christians for your glory and for the souls of men and women all over this world. In Jesus' name, amen. At the end of World War II, at the signing of the Japanese surrender, General MacArthur wanted to speak to America about peace, about world peace. He wanted to speak to the whole world and give them a strong warning of what might come. 
in that speech, which was an excellent speech and well worth listening to, he says this, men since the beginning of time have sought peace through military alliances, balances of power, leagues of nations, and all in turn have failed, leaving us with only one path, only one way, the crucible of war. But the utter destructiveness of war now blots out this alternative. We have had our last chance. If we do not devise some greater and equitable system, our Armageddon will be at our door. Armageddon is a word many of us have heard. It's very popular in movies and video games. But it's a battle and it's a place that will someday take place. But it's a battle at the end of a war. And this war has been raging since the beginning of time. It rages all around us. It rages right now. It's the battle for families. It's the battle for freedom. It's the battle against addiction. It's the battle for truth. It's the battle against evil. And it's the war for the souls of men and women. One only needs to walk down the street of Gravenhurst or turn on the news or flip through social media to see the casualties of this war. It's in our faces. It's in front of us. It's affected all of our lives in different ways. It's a war that started in heaven and came down to earth. The Bible tells us that Lucifer, the chief angel in heaven, wanted to be God. He wanted the praise. He wanted to replace God. And so he was thrown out. He rebelled. And then in the garden, he deceived Adam and Eve and convinced them that God's way was not the best way. And they sinned and sin entered into the world. And ever since, the battle has been raging here on earth. Last week, I talked with a woman. She came to the church looking for food. Um, I talked with her for about 20 minutes or so. She was about my age. She had a couple of older kids. She had many scars, many scars, scars of addictions, scars of abuse, scars of her own bad decisions. I could see it in her eyes. She had that look, that look that maybe some of you have seen, that look that maybe you've had in your eyes before. She was broken down. She was defeated. She was a casualty of sin. She was once a little girl. Whenever I look at somebody um, and in their state and their brokenness, I remember they were once a little child. She was once a little girl who had dreams, who, who played with dolls, who desired to be loved by her parents. But now, she was a casualty of sin. She had the same look I saw in um, 20 or 30 or 40 children in an orphanage in Kenya, that look of, I'm in this nightmare and and there's nobody to rescue me and, and I can't wake up. Someone help me. It's that look I saw in a... The eyes of an employee when I watched this uh, woman berate this man uh, in a restaurant. She uttered some racist comments and 
gave him the bird. And, and, and there's this look of this man. Uh, and, and, and the sin of this woman was so great. She was so selfish. She was so self-absorbed. She was so caught up in her own desires and, and over some little thing. She damaged this man. It's the look that I saw in a young man's eyes. And for his identity's sake, we'll call him Michael. Last time I saw Michael was eight years ago. Uh, I knew him before this. He was a member of my platoon. Uh, when we went over uh, my last time, he was, it was his first tour. He was 20, maybe 21 years old. He went over full of life, uh, thinking he was going to conquer the world and that he was invincible. And then over there, some things happened and he had to come home early. And when I saw him, about five years later, that was eight years ago, he had been using and he was in a place, Homewood, it's a mental institution. And that young man that was so full of life was now a casualty of sin and addiction and so on and so forth. And everyone in here probably has a story of how sin has affected you personally how it's robbed you of something, how it's scarred the people that you love, how you've participated in that. None of us are innocent. We all have sinned. We've all gone our own way. And the war will someday come to an end. It will be a final battle. This final battle that we're looking at today between good and evil, the battle of Armageddon, which the Bible says will usher in the second coming, the final coming of Jesus Christ. Last week we looked at the seven years of tribulation, the last seven years of human history when the Antichrist will try to usher in this period of of evil and wickedness and prosperity that the world has never seen. And at the end of that seven years, Revelation 16 tells us, verse 12, The sixth poured out his bowl on the great Euphrates, and its waters were dried up to prepare a way for the kings of the east. We talked a couple weeks ago about the Antichrist, and he will rise up, supported by at least ten nations. They will say, he's the man, he's the one to solve our problems, he is the answer. But along the way, he will no longer just uh, want obedience. He will want worship. He will want to be worshipped as God. And he will have one currency and one world government and one ID or one mark. And things will increasingly fall apart as he tries to consolidate his power. And it tells us that God's judgment, his sixth bowl, is to dry up the Euphrates River. Can we have the overhead up? Euphrates River, you can see that blue line, is one of the longest uh, rivers. It supports much life in the Middle East. And God says that he will dry that up. Why? To prepare the way for the kings of the east to invade Israel. You can't do it without that. You need a large transportation system. And by the end of the tribulation period, that will just not be possible. And so the Euphrates River will dry up. Revelation 9 verse 16 tells us the number of troops that will be. The number, it says, of mounted troops will be 200 million. 200 million troops will come 
to battle, to this final battle. And, and we've looked at, back at the first and the second sermons, we've looked at the Bible's ability to predict the future accurately. We saw how it predicted the birth of Jesus Christ, how it predicted the destruction and then reestablishment of Israel as a nation, not once, but twice. How it spoke of the nation of Persia and, and Greece, Alexander the Great, and the Romans that would rise up. It accurately predicted. And, and why can it do that? Because it's God's word. And it says that this will happen. And another amazing thing to understand here, to, to, to trust in the Bible, is that when this was written, when Revelation was written, it was the first century, it was written by the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. That's a, 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 an island, a prison island, they believe. He was there in prison, the last living apostle. And now in, in the first century A.D., There was only roughly, they estimate, between 150 and 300 million people on the entire earth. And so the apostle wrote to us through the inspiration of God, telling us there would be a time when a a battle would come, when an army of multiple kings would amass of 200 million, possibly more people than were living on the entire earth at that time. No army had ever come close to that number. That number of 200 million would seem ridiculous. And yet we have copies of Revelation from the second century. So it it means that somebody didn't just fill in this number in the 18th century. This was a number predicted to us by God. In fact, a thousand years after the first century, the number of the the world population was roughly the same. It wasn't until the 19th century that the world population hit a billion. In 1950, it was 2.5 billion. And now it's over tripled in the last 70 years. And only until the last 20 years has there been armies of this size that we're talking about. If you go to the next map, please, Mark. This is Israel. That right there, that dot that you see is Megiddo. This is the place we're going to talk about in a minute where the last battle of the war that has been raging will take place. If you can zoom out, what are the, and who are the kings of the east? This is the question. Well, if you look on a map... The kings of the east, that once the Euphrates River is dried up, that that long river that runs along through Iraq, or China, Russia, India. China, about 10 years ago, roughly, uh, said that it could bolster an army of 350 million soldiers. So if it sent 200 million soldiers, it would still have 150 million left over. And now we know at this period of time, much of the human race will be gone. But yet never in history has there been a time except for the last 20 years where the world could amass such an army. And the Bible accurately predicted that the powerhouses of the day would be east of Jerusalem, not south, not north, not west, but east. Then it tells us, verse 14, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who travel to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the great battle of the day of the Lord, the Almighty. Look, I am coming like a thief and blessed is the one who is alert and remains clothed. 
so that he may not go around naked and people see his shame. So they amassed, they assembled the kings of the whole, the kings at the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Armageddon, a name we know has become synonymous for the last battle, the end of the earth. There's only one place that's mentioned, one place in the entire Bible, this place we just looked at, Revelation 16, verse 16. The word, as I've written in the study guide, uh, comes Armageddon, comes from the Hebrew word Har-Mageddon. Har means mount, Megiddo means slaughter. So essentially Armageddon is called, comes from, in the Hebrew would mean mount of slaughter. Horrible thought in our minds. And so why would the final battle take place here in Israel? And at this specific place, this specific valley? That's a good question. Because Israel is the center of the world. Israel has been the most contested nation throughout world history. It's a key crossroads between Africa, between Asia, between Europe, and between the Middle East. And that is why it has been fought over so vigorously. That is why God established it as his place because he desired the gospel to go out to the entire world and what better place to do it than at the center of the world. And the place that this will take place is called the Valley of Jezreel. And Megiddo is the mountain that surrounds that. And this place has, has the only place really in the Middle East that could host such a large military force. If we can have the picture. The valley, you can see that those ruins, we'll look at those in a little more in a minute. Those ruins, it's a little sort of lip in the valley of Megiddo. And the valley is humongous. It's, it's so large. I was there in 2012 and as I stood right there on those ruins, I, I looked out and I have never seen a valley so large in my life. And it's very evident that this is important because it has been fought over. This valley has been fought over more than any other place in Israel except for maybe Jerusalem. If we can go to the next slide. When you go there and you walk on that lip which oversees the valley, it's really neat that archaeologists have dug up 26 different nations that once ruled there. And essentially when a nation was conquered, they would just build on top of it. They would beat it, maybe a a decade or two would go by and a new nation would build on top of it. Next slide. And you can walk these different layers throughout going back 4,000 years before the birth of Christ, seeing the first military to control it, the Egyptians. And it's quite an amazing place. And, and it's been contested over and fought over so much because it's a key place to holding Israel. It is the key place if you want to uh, come from Iraq through Egypt, and it's the key place if you want to travel from the coast down to Jordan. And it is the only place in the Middle East that will be able to have such a large group of people. Historians say it might possibly be the most contested and fought over place with the most wars, unique wars in history. It's the place that Deborah and Barak fought the King Jabin of Cana over in 1230 BC. It's the place that King Jewel killed 
the evil Queen Jezebel. That's why it's called the Valley of Jezreel. It's the place that Ahab, the evil king's son, was killed. And if you go there, next slide, please. Next one. If you go there, you can actually go in to what is left of King Ahab's palace. It's amazing. And it's there, inscribed, King Ahab's palace. Down, and these were his uh, escape tunnels from the palace. He had escape routes built underground. Next slide, please. That would lead underneath the mount to an escape place for him. It's quite amazing. This is where his wife and his son were killed in 841 BC. This valley is the place that the good king uh, Josiah was killed by one of Pharaoh, one of the pharaohs in 609 BC. This is the place that the Persians fought one of their biggest wars in 350 BC. This is the place where Napoleon, the great conqueror of the 18th century, stood in 1799 and said this as he prepared to fight the Ottoman Empire. All the armies of the world could maneuver their forces in this vast plain. There is no place in the whole world more suited for war than this. This is the place where the final battle of this long drawn out war will take place in Israel the most contested nation in history at the most contested spot in that nation the battle will be days if not weeks and at this some point in this battle Israel Jerusalem I mean will be conquered it says it in Zechariah chapter 12 verses 8 to 11 but As I said last week, the Jews will cry out for Christ. They will have tried everything else except for Christ. And finally, Zechariah chapter 13 verse 8 tells us this. They will call on my name and I will answer them. And I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is our God. I said at the start that this battle has been raging. We know it's how it's going to end. But the question is, how does that affect us here and now? Most of us would assume, even if we're the generation to see the Lord's coming, we probably won't be there. We probably won't get an invite to fight on the Lord's behalf at this great battle. So how does it affect us now? We have to understand that we are all involved in this conflict. Whether we want to be or not, Whether we believe we are or not, we are all affected by it. Some people work for evil. We see the effects of that. Some people think they're really kind of neutral, but they're not. And some people are working with all their being to fight on the Lord's behalf. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Paul reminds us of something. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. Paul reminds us that whether we want to be or not, we are involved in this battle. We can't run away from it. We can't hide from it. We can't cover ourselves in in prosperity or just focus on our own lives and think it won't affect us. It affects us. And what we do or don't do affects the battles that are raging on around us. We're wrestling not against men and women. We're wrestling against evil, demonic spirits. That's hard for us to think in our sophisticated technological age that we live in, yet it's the truth. We see it. No matter how much technology we make, the same evil still seems to roam this earth. And we must be saved. Look at verse 10. Paul says, finally, be strengthened by the Lord with his vast strength. The reality is, is that we cannot do much. We can't even stand against these spiritual forces that we're told exist unless we're saved. And by saved, I don't mean we make a profession and then go on with our North American Christian lives and and come to church once a week. But that we join Christ's army, that he becomes our king and our savior, that we are then strengthened by the Lord and his vast strength. That's what the Christian life is. And and we gotten this so distorted with all the stuff that we hear nowadays in, in our 21st century. But the Christian promise is this, that if we will humble ourselves and admit that we are a part of the problem, yes, you are a sinner me a sinner, that we have contributed to some of the hardships and the horrible things around this earth. Yes, to varying different degrees, but that we are, then Christ will forgive us and Christ will save us. And not only that, but Christ will strengthen us, that he will come to live inside of us. That is the Christian promise. And that is what he wants for you. That is, that is why I do what I do. Because I want for you what he did in me. That I was a broken, lost man who couldn't stand up to sin, who was controlled by it. And you may say, well, I'm not uh, like you were. Oh, you have your vices. You have your things. You have your things that control you. We are all just in different ways affected. And yet he promises no matter who we are, that he will come in and give us his vast strength. That's not muscle power. That's not being some great warrior. That's being a spiritual warrior. That's the promise of giving you compassion and love for people that you didn't have. That's the promise to give you abilities to love and minister to people that you didn't possess before. This is the promise of Christ. So the first step is to be filled and strengthened by him. Or you can't even begin to stand up to these forces. You will be controlled by them. But once you are, look down at verse 13. Once you have made Christ your king, 
And he says, for this reason, take up the full armor of God so you'll be able to resist in the evil day. And having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand, therefore, in the truth like a belt around your waist. Righteousness like the armor on your chest. And your feet sandaled with the readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Christians, we are called to take up the armor of God to take it every day and put it on and fasten ourselves for this spiritual war. And and some Christians, they get saved, but it seems like they just wake up every morning and leave the spiritual armor beside the bed and carry on with their day. I've been lamenting. Share something personal with you. As Afghanistan is falling, We talked about it a year ago. I said most likely it would fall back in the hands of the Taliban within a year, and it it is. They've taken all the places that we fought for when I was there. They're all gone. All those people swallowed up by evil. And so it hits hard for me as I watch it happening. And as we speak now, they've surrounded the capital city, the last stand and I've thought a lot in my mind how did this happen 20 years why weren't they able to overcome this evil the reality is the evil there is an evil that few of us have ever seen an evil that is so despicable and horrible I don't even want to tell you about it So the evil is great. Just like the evil we face in this world, the spiritual evil is great. It won't just leave you alone. It won't just leave your children alone and your grandchildren alone. It wants to consume and destroy. And we did our best. There was few of us compared to them. But in thinking a lot about this, I realized that the missing piece, and it's not easy to say, but thinking about it was the missing piece to why the country was not able to find some other alternative was the vast majority of everyday people didn't take up the fight against this evil. And in many ways, that's the church today in North America. There are a small number of passionate people following their king, pouring out their lives for him, taking up the full armor of God. But much of the church in the West leaves the armor beside the bed every day, gets up, goes about their day, sees what's happening around them and says, that's horrible, but does little about it. Paul tells us to take up our armor and fight the fight. 
And then he says, pray at all times in the spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all the perseverance in intercession of the saints. Where did we see that? Didn't Jesus say that in Revelation 16? Verse 15, look, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who is alert and remains clothed. What kind of clothing? Spiritual armor. Jesus and Paul are talking about the same kind of things. Being alert, being having an understanding of what is going on around us and not just sort of going through life hoping we're going to be able to retire and live an easy life. That is not what Christ has called for us Christians. He's called us to get into the fight. With what? With sacrificial love and compassion for the people around us. Then he says, pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth and make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. And this is amazing. Paul is asking, Paul kind of like the, the pinnacle that we would think of the Christian life. He is asking for Christians to pray for him for boldness. Does Paul seem like a guy who needs help with boldness? No. But he's telling us his boldness comes from a willingness to serve his king, but also from the power of the Holy Spirit. Every one of you is capable of sharing the gospel. Every single one of you. If I am able, you are able. And the Holy Spirit can give you what you need to be able to speak with boldness. That doesn't mean being rude or arrogant. That means being confident that the gospel is the message that saves. So you need to pray for each other and for yourself that God will give you the ability to do this. And then finally he says, for this I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. Paul reminds us that we are God's ambassadors. In the darkness, in the stuff we see going on, we are the ambassadors, the representatives. We are the light of the world. God is living in us. And if the church is not his ambassadors, then God is not working. You're as ambassadors. That means you are to represent him well through sacrificial love, through the proclamation of the gospel. We can win battles in this great war. We can take back this community. We can change the lives of people around us through the power of Christ. That is the call. That is the invitation. I'm going to pray and invite Pastor Mark to come up and lead us in communion. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you would allow a poor soul like me to be your representative. 
Oh God, would you give myself and everyone here a feeling of such honor to be able to represent you? And would we do it well? Would we be easy to forgive those around us? Would we be full of compassion and love for those who may not deserve it? Lord, for any that have not actually given you their lives, who have actually not made you their savior, who maybe come to church but realize they are not strengthened by your vast power, oh Lord, I pray they would. And would we all start putting on the armor that you have so graciously given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.